This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Finding Strength in Times of Adversity. In the first half, Sterling C. Hilton shares his address, His Burden is Light. Then in the second half, Casey C. Peterson speaks on Dally Up, Finding Our Anchor in Turbulent Times. Good morning. I'm humbled to stand where prophets, apostles, general authorities, university presidents, important scholars, and even world leaders have stood. As a student at BYU 30 years ago, I attended the devotionals and forums quite faithfully. I loved taking a break once a week to listen to remarkable individuals share their insights on a myriad of topics. I enjoyed listening and learning without any worry that I might be tested on what I was hearing. It was education at its best. Now, I am what I used to refer to as the dark horse in the devotional lineup. A dark horse is a completely unknown quantity with no name recognition whatsoever. You are probably like one of my students who looked at the list of speakers for this semester and asked, Why are you on the list? My response to her is, I don't know. I've been asking myself the same question. But whatever the reason, I'm here. And I hope that something I share this morning will move you to open your hearts to the whisperings of the Holy Ghost and that you will be encouraged in your efforts to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One of my favorite scriptures is found in Matthew 11. It's Christ's universal invitation that speaks to each of us personally. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love this passage, because in a few short verses, Christ lays before us the path to eternal life. The overtones and undertones of these verses resonate with truth. First, the very fact that it is an invitation to come, to take, and to learn all indicate an acknowledgment of and a respect for our agency. This respect for agency causes me to think of our premortal life, where we fought in our Father's army to preserve and maintain the condition of agency in this life. It seems right that Christ, who is the linchpin in our Father's plan of happiness, acknowledges that it is our choice to come unto Him or not. I also appreciate the simple promise of rest that is given. Having labored under sin and its heavy weight of guilt and separation from God, I am grateful for the promise of rest and reconciliation Christ promises to those who come unto Him. I find great meaning in the word yoke. It evokes so many important things about Christ's path. A yoke is a wooden bar or frame by which two draft animals are joined at the necks for working together to pull a heavy load. A yoke is also a frame fitted to a person's shoulders to carry a load in two equal portions. Whether we envision a double or single yoke, the Savior is part of this image. We are either teamed with Him side by side or we are carrying His yoke. Yokes imply burdens or heavy loads. Thus, by taking His yoke upon us, we are also taking upon us the load to which it is attached. The sequence of first taking and then learning indicates that this isn't an armchair exercise of the intellect. It is experiential. Only through experiencing Christ's path for ourselves can we learn of Him at the level necessary to prove ourselves and to receive His gift. I love it that Christ doesn't keep His learning objective hidden. He tells us quite plainly what we will be learning. For I am meek and lowly in heart. This statement picks up and echoes the recurring theme that Christ taught His disciples when He said, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Christ's path is a path of meekness and submission. We must learn to submit our wills to the Father's. If we follow His path to the end, we won't just find rest, but we will find rest unto our souls. This phrase echoes the numerous promises of eternal life that are found in the scriptures and that are promised to all who choose to receive it. Now, I confess that the last verse, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, has been wonderfully problematic for me, since I have experienced tribulation somewhat regularly along Christ's path of discipleship. Now, you probably aren't like me, but I have been known to mutter under my breath, 
I wonder if I can sue for false advertising. How is this easy and light? Of course, that's just when I'm feeling a bit ornery. I truly, fully believe that there is no deception in Christ. So I know he meant what he said. I just haven't fully understood it. As I have pondered this phrase and tried to reconcile it with all of my experiences, I have come to see it in a new way. It seems that the previous verse holds the key. What if Christ's yoke is the Father's will? Plain, simple, easy. And what if we consider light as a noun instead of an adjective? We don't often think of light as a burden. However, remember the scriptures that teach where much is given, much is required? Receiving light brings duty and responsibility. Some scriptural synonyms for light are truth, glory, and love. When I read verse 30 in this way, it takes on a whole new meaning for me. For my yoke is the Father's will, and my burden is light, truth, glory, and love. Understanding this passage in this way has helped me more fully understand that when we yoke ourselves to Christ, we commit to do all things our Father commands us to do. When we remain yoked to Christ in times of prosperity and joy and in times of tribulation and suffering, we learn of him and become like him. We learn to divest ourselves of selfishness and replace it with selflessness, to obey as he obeyed and to love as he loved. By so doing, we keep our second estate. So how do we take Christ's yoke upon us? Simple. We follow him and strive to emulate him. His perfect obedience to God's commandments, both universal and personal, illustrate not only a perfect love for our Father, but also a perfect submission of his will to the Father's. Christ's example of submission is so perfect that we sometimes miss the truth that Christ actually had his own will. We see Christ's will, however, as he obeyed the Father's personal commandment to him to bring about the atonement. We see it in these words Christ prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Here we clearly see Christ's will, which is separate from the Father's. We also clearly see his perfect and complete submission, for he accepted his burden and suffered in Gethsemane and during the illegal Sanhedrin trial and in Pilate's palace and at Golgotha. He sacrificed his life even when the Father withdrew his spirit and left him alone. There is another important lesson to be learned about tribulation from Luke's account of the Savior's submission in the Garden of Gethsemane. After Christ had committed himself to God's will to bring about the Atonement, we read the following. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. I believe Christ's complete yielding allowed the Father to send this heavenly support. The purpose of such help was to strengthen Christ in carrying the burden placed upon him by the Father, not to lift it from his shoulders. God's will for Christ was that he love and suffer and sacrifice and atone. The Father didn't remove this burden, nor did the angel. Christ carried this burden whose weight caused suffering we cannot understand. Luke explains, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Well, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but tribulation and suffering are part of the path of discipleship. Of course, you've already figured this out. And there's also prosperity and joy, too, that balances the other. Not that I'm suggesting that prosperity and joy and tribulation and suffering come in equal proportions. My experience suggests that the former far outweighs the latter. However, tribulation and suffering are part of the path. How we respond to our life conditions, whether in prosperity or tribulation, is what matters in mortality. Remember, our life on earth is a proving ground, a trial. Our pattern of choices determines the degree of promised glory that we are willing to receive from our loving Father. 
Christ's path teaches us how to receive all of our Heavenly Parents' glory by teaching us how to be obedient in all things they command us to do here. Here is what I have learned so far from my periods of tribulation and suffering. I have learned these things as I have learned to willingly submit my will to the Father's. When I have chosen to harden my heart, my tribulation hasn't sanctified me. For me, learning to submit in all things is a process. I'm learning line upon line, precept upon precept, which is why tribulation ebbs and flows throughout our life. I've learned three things I'd like to share with you. First, experiencing tribulation reveals remnants of the natural man within me, and submitting my will cleanses and refines my soul of these remnants. Second, Experiencing tribulation reveals an essential dimension of God's burden of light and truth and love, and submitting my will expands my capacity to receive the gifts of faith, hope, and charity. Finally, experiencing tribulation is a necessary condition under which we must prove ourselves faithful and obedient to God's will. We must prove ourselves in all things in order to receive all their glory. A poem entitled Indwelling by Thomas Edward Brown beautifully expresses our need to put off the natural man and eliminate selfishness so that we can put on the cloak of selflessness. If thou couldst empty all thyself of self, like to a shell dishabited, then might he find thee on the ocean shelf and say, This is not dead, and fill thee with himself instead. But thou art all replete with very thou, and hast such shrewd activity that when he comes he says, This is a now unto itself, t'were better let it be. It is so small and full, there is no room for me. When we obey God's commandments and diligently try to follow the doctrines of Christ, we put off large portions of the natural man, however remnants still remain. These remnants are the part of ourselves that are centered on self rather than being centered on others. Eliminating these remnants that are deeply embedded in our souls is not an easy task. Sometimes we don't even know certain aspects of the natural man still exist within us. Tribulation has a way of bringing to light the remnants of the natural man that still reside within us. Unlike the God in Thomas Brown's poem who seems content to let us be small and full of self, Our loving Father offers us tribulation to poke and to prod us to empty ourselves of self that we might be filled with his light instead. I would like to share with you a few personal experiences that have taught me these things. I do so to illustrate in a very concrete way that these principles are true and not just some theoretical and scriptural abstraction. By choosing my own experiences, I am taking a risk. I run the risk of you mistakenly thinking that I'm putting myself forward as an example to follow. I'm not. Christ is our example. I also run the risk of you mistakenly thinking that I'm suggesting my tribulations are somehow unique and greater than anyone else's. I'm not. I believe that everyone experiences tribulation and that these tribulations are individually tailored to fit their circumstances and needs their strengths and weaknesses. We are told that we must needs be chastened and tried even as Abraham, but that doesn't mean we will be commanded to sacrifice our son. I believe it means that we will all be tried as Abraham, pushed beyond our limits in order to expand these limits. I acknowledge that the conditions that cause you tribulation and suffering will be different from mine. However, if we follow Christ's path of meekness and submission, then our sanctification will be the same. So I share my own experiences because they are what I know best, and sometimes the lessons we learn from suffering aren't easy to discern from the outside. In sharing my own experiences, I also bear testimony of the reality of God's promise to lead us by the hand and give us answer to our prayers. I testify that the joy and happiness we receive in this life and in the next from walking Christ's path are far greater than we can imagine. I am grateful for God's guidance and love, and I acknowledge it in all its forms. 
In the early fall of 2000, my wife and I were prompted to pursue the adoption of a child from India. We already had two biological daughters and an adopted son, but we followed that prompting. And four and a half years later, we were offered a three-month-old baby named Chatna, whose name means awakening or bright intelligence. Chatna had a rough start in life, spending six of her first 12 weeks in the hospital, but she was a fighter and survived to three months of age, qualifying her to be placed for adoption. At the time of our matching, she had no known major disabilities. Among the many papers and forms that you fill out during an adoption is a three- to four-page form listing conditions that you are willing to assume in your adopted child. The list ranges from perfectly normal to very severe disabilities. We had indicated not accept to all but a few of the mild disabilities. We were not Mother Teresa. We were approaching our forties and already had three kids. We weren't looking for a challenge. As we considered the possibility of adopting Chetna, we poured over the two-inch-thick medical file we had been sent. We consulted with our pediatrician. We studied it out in our minds. We prayed, and we decided to adopt Chetna. Then we went to the Provo Temple seeking confirmation of our decision. It came clearly and peacefully. Yes, this is your child. We were overjoyed that we had found her at last. We called our social worker and told her our decision. Four weeks later, we were told that Chetna's primary caregiver at the orphanage in Calcutta was concerned that she wasn't responding to sound like she should. We were asked if her hearing could be tested again. We gave permission and then received a call a few days later telling us that Chetna was profoundly deaf in her right ear and severely deaf in her left. Our social worker quickly assured us that we could reconsider our decision, that we hadn't agreed to this. What she didn't know was that since we had listed our answers on that form years earlier, we had changed. Among the many changes was the witness that we had received from the Holy Ghost in God's temple. We knew that adopting Chetna was part of God's personal plan for us. So without hesitation, we told her, there is no change in our decision. We accept the condition. Six weeks after that, we learned that she was blind. This time the news came by letter instead of phone. In the letter, we were again told that we could reconsider our decision. When my then 12-year-old daughter Elizabeth read this line, she asked what it meant. When I explained it to her, she said with some fervor and indignation, Well, we aren't going to do that. She was right. We wrote back and said, There is no change in our decision. We accept this condition. Later that night, after the kids were in bed and with some fear and trepidation in our hearts, my wife and I held hands across our kitchen table and wondered aloud how we were going to do this. A deaf and blind child? We felt overwhelmed. But we put our trust in the Lord and we moved forward. Now, when I learned that Chetna was blind, I was afraid. Blindness touched upon a very deep-seated personal fear of mine. Gratefully, though, there wasn't just fear in my heart. There was also faith. I believed Christ had given sight to the blind. In New Testament times, and I believed that he could do so today. So I started to pray daily and fast weekly that Chetna would be given her sight. I did this for five months. At first, these prayers and fasting were grounded in my own fears of blindness. Gradually, they progressed to being grounded in my inability to parent a child with blindness, and then to a concern for her life condition. Finally, they became grounded, firmly grounded in God's will being done, regardless of the outcome. Now, there was a point between the third and fourth stages of my progression that I allowed doubt and anger into my life. Essentially, I let go of God's hand. And during this period, my prayers weren't prayers at all. They were demands crouched in the trappings of prayer. I treated God like a short-order cook at a roadside cafe who had gotten my order wrong. Finally, after three weeks of walking in the light of my own sparks instead of in God's light, I paused long enough for the Spirit to penetrate my mind with a single question. 
Don't you trust me to take care of Chetna until she is in your care? To provide for her what I know she needs? That quiet question brought me up short, and I came to myself. My response to the Spirit's question moved me towards complete submission. It had taken nearly five months, but I was finally able to say, with all my heart and without conditions or hidden reservations, Thy will be done. Fast forward now eleven years, for I have neither the time nor capacity to tell you a hundredth part of our journey with Chetna, of its summits and valleys. However, I can tell you that people are drawn to her light. God's light and love shine through her eyes. She can see. It's a gift from God who knew what we didn't. When we brought Chetna home from the orphanage in Calcutta, we didn't know that she wouldn't be able to move her fingers, hands, and arms to sign as a way of communicating, that she wouldn't be able to swallow sufficiently well to gain weight and thrive, that she wouldn't walk or talk, and that the only muscle groups that she would be able to control at will are those that control her smile. In short, we didn't know that she would have quadriplegic cerebral palsy. We didn't know any of these things. All of these conditions would be revealed to us over time. But God knew, and in his infinite kindness, he gave Chetna her sight and her smile, that she might have one avenue of communication with her world. Now many might think that Chetna's smile is the smile of someone mentally deficient, that she is unaware of her circumstances and therefore incapable of true and meaningful choice. They would be wrong. Chetna is whole in mind and soul. It is her body that is afflicted. She chooses her responses to her conditions and tribulation just as freely as you and I choose ours. Through her pattern of choices, Chetna has become my greatest teacher of how to bear my burdens with greater grace and patience. She teaches me how to suffer long, to be kind, to bear all things, and to endure all things. Thus, when she smiles, the light she is carrying emanates from her soul. She reassures me that God is real and that all is well because we have his love. The purpose of our tribulation is not crushing hopeless despair. The fruit of our suffering can be a bright hope. Remaining steadfast in Christ through our afflictions and adversity increases our capacity to see our promised end more clearly. Like a powerful spotlight that shines more brightly in complete darkness, our suffering reveals Christ to us. We see his promise of salvation, of resurrection, and of eternal life more clearly in our mind's eye. And we look forward with a bright hope to that perfect day, seeing it afar off, but knowing that it lies ahead. Do I believe that I am finished? No, and just ask anyone who knows me. I'm not a finished product. I have miles to go before I sleep. Will my path again become steep and rocky and painful? Certainly. But I do not fear what lies ahead. I know in whom I have trusted. He has shown me how to carry on when darkness surrounds me. And now you, what will you do when you experience tribulation? If it's tribulation that comes from putting off Christ's yoke and leaving his path, then I encourage you to repent and return. But what if it's tribulation you experience along Christ's path? What will you do when you come to your Gethsemanes? For Gethsemane moments are bound to come to those who take Christ's yoke upon them and follow his path of discipleship. I encourage you to choose a battle cry of commitment. There are many to choose from. Choose you this day whom ye will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Shall we not carry on in so great a cause, go forward and not backward, courage, and on, on to the victory? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. 
I testify that if we will repent, our chastenings will cleanse our souls of sin. If we submit with meekness to God's will, our afflictions will refine us and expand our capacity to receive and carry more light and truth and love. So stay the course. I encourage you not as a bystander on the sidelines watching you run, nor as a finisher who has completed the race, but as a fellow runner who is running the race with you. Remember this promise from the Lord as you experience tribulation and suffering. It applies to all who submit to God's will. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Finding Strength in Times of Adversity. We've just heard from Sterling C. Hilton. After the break, we'll return with Casey C. Peterson for Dally Up, Finding Our Anchor in Turbulent Times. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Finding Strength in Times of Adversity. Next is Casey C. Peterson, BYU Associate Dean of Students at the time of this address, titled Dally Up, Finding Our Anchor in Turbulent Times. I am humbled and thankful to be among so many friends today and see so many of my current and former students. I grew up on a large cattle ranch, first near Eureka, Nevada, and later in Kenosh, Utah. Days would start very early, catching and saddling my horse in the moonlit and frosty morning hours. As the first rays of sunshine would start coming over the mountains, the cowboys I was working with would scatter out and begin looking for cows and calves from among sagebrush flats and juniper-covered hillsides. The sight was surreal, as I would watch hundreds of cows and calves being herded toward a corral to be branded and vaccinated. As a young boy, I aspired to be able to rope the calves as my part of the branding. Alternative responsibilities entailed wrestling the calves to the ground, oftentimes resulting in me getting kicked or run over. At about the age of seven, after repeated failure tackling the calves, I was finally allowed to try my hand at roping. I remember proudly getting my lasso rope ready and searching out the smallest and slowest-looking calf in the herd. I carefully planned my throw and felt the thrill and accomplishment when the loop settled over the calf successfully. Though seemingly small and slow, I felt the tremendous force of the calf start to jerk me off my horse. Despite trying my best to hold on to the calf, I found that my strength was no match for him. Just as I was being violently jerked out of my saddle, I heard a wise cowboy yell across to me, Dally up. A dally occurs by taking the rope and making two or three quick wraps around the saddle horn. The saddle becomes an anchor point, which connects to the greater strength of a steady and powerful horse. The dally transformed my situation of having inadequate personal strength to being able to access a greater power that anchored the turbulent polar forces acting upon me. This simple act allowed me to draw strength from something far greater. Instead of being violently jerked from my saddle, I found the relative ease of letting my horse do the pulling. While I had the much more simple and manageable task of holding the dally tight and maintaining the connection to the anchoring force. Many times in my life since, I have felt greater powers than I have been prepared to withstand. These have seemed to yank me from a place of security and comfort in my life. Each time I have reflected upon opportunities to dally up to a power greater than my own that can serve as an anchor of strength. I would like to share some of the points of my learning of how to dally up in our inevitable circumstances of needing to find our anchor during turbulent times in our lives. First, strength in service. Second, strength in involvement. Third, strength in commitments. The first, strength in service. At the age of four, my father was killed in a farming accident. I remember the confusion, the pain, and the worry for my widowed mother. My father was near completion of his degree from BYU and had returned to the family farm to support his young family. Upon his untimely death, 
Many faculty members and department representatives reached out to our family to make sure that my father's diploma was received. I remember the small cap and gown that was prepared for me and the nervous excitement of participating in graduation exercises. Here is a picture of those exercises that I first participated in. The personal care, the concern, and the service that they gave to my family became an anchor during our tragedy. Those faculty members and administrators continued that care and concern for years, up through the time that I was able to be a student myself on this campus and receive my own diploma. The fourth theme of a BYU education, lifelong learning and service, has had special significance for me, as I have felt an association between BYU and service on a deeply personal level. My love for BYU, students, faculty, and administrators is because I have been loved by so many in so many ways. My definition of service comes from Alma chapter 17, verse 9. Upon feeling a desire to change and to transition from selfish actions to selfless service, the sons of Mosiah fasted much and prayed much that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of His Spirit to go with them and abide with them, that they might be an instrument in the hands of God. This campus is filled with many instruments, including scientific, laboratory, research, musical, and others. Instruments provide access to all kinds of power, as opposed to tools which have an inherent power within them based off of mass and force. The power of instruments comes from the skill of a master. A master surgeon or a master musician or a master teacher can do remarkable things while working with instruments. The sons of Mosiah were not seeking language skills, motivational techniques, behavioral understanding, or a psychological analysis of the individuals that they were serving. They were seeking to be instruments in the hands of God, allowing His power to flow through them and be made manifest in the lives of those they served. One of the most humbling emotions that we can experience is feeling God's perfect power and trust working through us achieving far greater results than we otherwise could imagine. Those being served are impacted more deeply, and those serving also are blessed. Power in service is the power of God working through us as instruments. Notice from the following video from our BYU Serve students the anchoring power and aspects of their lives given through service, and especially how being an instrument in God's hands anchors our relationship to Him. things I've learned this semester is how capable people are. I've seen how much other people can do just by talking to them and getting to know who they are. I think service is, you know, getting the job done, but it's also making friendships, and I think that's something I've learned is how many friendships there are out there to be made. I think I've learned a lot about the principle of unity and just kind of through counsel with the other program directors, kind of establishing a plan and just really you know, figuring out what the what the Lord's hope is for the event. I would say something that I learned is just don't think about serving so much, just kind of do it. Like a lot of times you think about the consequences or the implications of stuff and like, oh, they don't need it or I wouldn't help that much. But instead, just go do it and don't worry about what the end result is, just, just serve. I think probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned is the power of serving for the right reasons serving with Christ-like love. If you wake up with the right attitude, like, oh, yes, I get to go serve today, it makes the biggest difference. and It can enlighten your life and give you new perspectives and greater peace than anything else. Christ ministered to the individual. And for me, that's when why serve is at its pinnacle, is when it's just me with one person that I'm serving learning to really love them. Um, and I think service is one of the very few ways that God can open your eyes to love someone as God loves them. What I've realized about Christ's example by being a part of this program is that I'm seeing that even though we work with different kids in different schools, um, you step into them really just loving them without really knowing them. I think I've really come to find out that Christ's ministry was a ministry of service. The Savior was spending so much time working with those who were 
needy and those who are disabled. And it's been incredible to be a part of YServe because I know that when I'm a part of YServe, I'm working with the people that the Savior would be working with if he was here. Through my experience serving, I felt I have gotten to know the Savior better and on a more personal level. When I do serve and in my project, I feel like I have the opportunity to be like the Savior and do as He did. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. I get to take a minute and really live like the Savior did. The Center has really given me a sense of purpose, really, and I can make a difference. I think that's what I've realized that I wouldn't have if I wasn't involved in YSA. I came to BYU because I wanted experiences like this and instead of going elsewhere for college. And I think it's affected my college experience, being able to serve other people and like be around other people so much like who need help. Um, it's gonna, the rest of my life I want to surround myself in an opportunity where I can help people and be of use to, to Heavenly Father and other people. And that has to do everything with YSERV. Before YSERV, I really focused on school. I focused on my schoolwork and my job and how busy I was just doing that, but I didn't really feel like I was really doing anything. I felt a big chunk of my identity kind of missing, and um, I didn't realize that until I started coming in contact with YSERV. Sometimes we can be artificially concerned for other people, and we should be, but until we actually serve them, that's when God can transform that concern into a real love, where we're so excited when they succeed, and we, we hurt when, when things are hard for them and they have challenges and fears. It's really sweet and tender to think of how much they've blessed me because I've been willing to say, hey, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this, but I'm going to learn about it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve these people and it's, it's been really touching. I love YServe and it's given me the direction that I needed in my life and it's all thanks to the people that are in YServe. This instillment of that kind of drive that I have, I'll just be able to carry that on and so it won't be as hard to incorporate service into my life because I will have already done it. It just gives an awesome opportunity to be able to set everything aside and to just really focus on others and put my own struggles and challenges aside. God is very aware about His children. He loves them a lot. And He knows when they're struggling and when they're going through really hard times. And if we're willing to serve and we're willing to put ourselves out there um, to be helping hands, He takes care of His children through us. And He can put us in the exact right situations at the exact right time to, to be the one person that can be helping um, in a really big way. And that was huge for me this last semester as I watched the kid that I mentor uh, really suffer through some things. Uh, and learning to love him like God loves him. Notice the anchoring power of service in the lives of these students and the examples of service and the strength that that has brought. My second point is strength and involvement. We are fortunate on this campus to have offices, ecclesiastical groups, and activities that facilitate service opportunities. BYOSA and Student Leadership, the University Accessibility Center, Multicultural Student Services, International Student Services, Residence Halls, MUSA, First Year Experience, Academic and BYOSA Clubs, Student Alumni, Wards and Stakes, Women's Services and Resources, and previously mentioned YSERV, are some of the organizations that provide opportunities to get involved on campus and in the community. As I work with departments and organizations focused on service, I am amazed at the mutual reciprocity between servers and receivers that allows service to flow between them. I love the parables found in Luke chapter 15 that I believe explain both the purposes and the people intended to get involved. The first parable of Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. My kids and I have a farm near our home in Salem. My kids raise animals to pay for their activities educations, and their missions. We are very familiar with the concept of animals getting out and wandering. The parable of the lost sheep is about leaving the comfort and flock and the fold and looking for something better, probably food. 
Looking for something better is not a bad thing. Don't we all aspire to finding something better in our lives? In fact, isn't coming to college much like leaving our comfortable flock and fold to venture out to an unfamiliar environment that will improve our situation? Across campus, there are activities, events, involvement, and food that are publicized, encouraging and enticing the lost sheep of campus to find something better. Are we looking for those lost sheep and students and helping them to find their way? President Worthen oftentimes has said, if we look hard enough, those students are easy to see. In one way or another, we are all looking for something better, and it can be challenging to find it without the caring shepherd to assist our efforts. Let us be those shepherds. Service is the connecting conduit that brings lost souls from the periphery into the fold of involvement and acceptance. The second parable of Luke 15 is of the lost coin. This wasn't an issue of monetary devaluation, but it was an issue of priority. The money meant something to the woman, but perhaps not as much as to be high priority of care and concern for her. Other tasks, other items, and perhaps other people caused her to neglect her coin until it became lost. How many people on campus that have infinite worth are neglected as we worry more about our own selfish tasks, our own items, and our own circles of friends? One of my greatest wishes for this campus is that the worth of each student is recognized and not one is lost in obscurity or a feeling of unimportance and neglect. To accomplish that, we all need to reach out in care, compassion, and conversation to each other. During inevitable times of sadness, loneliness, or inadequacy, thousands of students of programs, clubs, activities, and opportunities await you. And instead of waiting for them to find you, please step up and volunteer to lead those activities. Leaders feel the strongest anchor because they have increased investment and involvement. The worth of souls we know is great to God. Let us never neglect each person who is a child of Him. I am grateful each day to learn about the stories and the lives of individual students who become involved. They are fascinating what they have overcome, what talents they bring, and who they are. Each of us has a story, and each of us has great worth. Taking the time to get to know each other offers us great opportunities to learn charity through our involvement. Elder Marvin J. Ashton defined charity in the following way. He said, Real charity is not something you give away. It is something that you acquire and make part of yourself. And when the virtue of charity becomes implanted in your heart, you are never the same again. Perhaps the greatest charity comes when we are kind to each other, when we do not judge or categorize someone else, when we are simply give each other the benefit of the doubt or remain silent. Charity is accepting someone else's differences, weaknesses, and shortcomings, having patience with someone who has let us down, or resisting the impulse to become offended when someone does not handle something the way we might have hoped. Charity is refusing to take advantage of another's weaknesses and becoming willing to forgive someone who has hurt us. Charity is expecting the best of each other. Charity for others becomes an anchoring point achieved by knowing the Savior, by seeing serving, and being involved with others as He does. Service is the laboratory for learning charity. As we come to have charity for others, love God, and serve others, we begin to be stronger in the covenants and commitments that bind us to them and find their infinite worth. The third parable in Luke 15 is of the prodigal son. This is an instance of selfishness and rebellion. For whatever reason, there are those in our midst in open rebellion or selfish behaviors. Often their actions are detrimental and destructive. Their storminess and turbulence create divisiveness and dissension. But the parable of the prodigal son teaches unconditional love for the individual, even when we don't accept their behaviors. If left unchecked, rebellious actions lead to a loss of the sense of the sacred that Elder D. Todd Christofferson spoke of when he stated, quote, The importance of having a sense of the sacred is simply this. If one does not appreciate holy things, he will lose them. Absent a feeling of reverence, he will grow increasingly casual in attitude and lax in conduct. He will drift from the moorings that his covenants with God could provide. His feelings of accountability to God will diminish and then be forgotten. Thereafter, he will care only about his own comfort and satisfying his uncontrolled appetites. 
Finally, he will come to despise sacred things, even God, and then he will despise himself. On the other hand, with a sense of the sacred, one grows in understanding and truth. The Holy Spirit becomes frequent and then constant companion. More and more, he will stand in holy places and be entrusted with holy things. Just the opposite of cynicism and despair, his end is eternal life. Close quote. We have the opportunity and responsibility through service and involvement to help those who are willfully rebelling to regain their sense of the sacred. This can be the most difficult service that we give, but it can yield high rewards throughout eternity. Which brings to my last point, strengthening commitments. In his inaugural address at BYU just about a year ago today, President Worthen stated the following, In like manner, We must go to the mountains spiritually if we are to obtain an elevated and ethereal education. It is not enough to gain learning by study. We must also live our lives in such a way that we, both students and faculty, are able to receive inspiration directly from God. That requires adherence to both the spirit and letter of the Honor Code, which was designed not just to distinguish us from other universities, but to prepare us for elevated forms of learning. One way that we are a unique and elevated university is through our observance and commitment to the Honor Code that President Worthen spoke of. The Honor Code is a blessing, an anchor given to us at BYU to stabilize our moral, academic, social, and spiritual pursuits. As President Worthen also explained, it is designed to elevate us in these pursuits. I am continually saddened by those who continually neglect aspects of the Honor Code, or worse, try to reduce the rigor of the Honor Code by changing it. They argue it is outdated and antiquated, yet elevated learning and constancy and commitment are unwavering blessings that are part of our quest for perfection and eternal life, as stated in the mission of BYU. How can we truly expect the anchoring power of the Spirit in our lives if we are lax, lazy, or disparaging in our observance to a commitment that we made to live? Is it elevated learning if we seek the minimum of standards or play the game of not getting caught? A student that I recently met had grown his hair for two years until it reached down his back while still attending classes, church, and activities on campus. He explained that it became a quest for him to see how long he could go without someone telling him to cut his hair. He placed the responsibility for his commitment on others to enforce it. That student has come around, is one of my dear friends now, and is doing fantastically well with Honor Code-compliant haircut in place. Other students rationalize that if they don't have a test in the testing center, if they don't have an intramural game or a work requirement, the dress and grooming standards don't need to be observed. They begin to focus on enforcement by the institution and not the integrity of the individual. In fact, the first point of the Honor Code is honesty. I believe that if all students understood and esteemed this point of being honest in their commitments and their covenants, that we wouldn't have to talk about how often to shave, what is modest clothing, what moral boundaries not to cross, academic honesty, curfew times, and even the dreaded man bun. Our vision would be lifted from minimally accepted social standards to what President Worthen called elevated and ethereal education. What distinguishes us from other universities is the individual commitment of each student to uphold their commitment based off of individual integrity. This is summed up in the beautiful poem by Edwin Markham, which states, Why build these cities glorious if man unbuilded goes? In vain we build the world unless the builder also grows. I appreciate an institution not just concerned with building facilities, reputations, and research. But based on a foundation of integrity and commitment, individuals will be able to experience elevated learning that helps build testimonies, families, communities, careers, and the Church around them. In building, the quality of the materials determine the strength of the product. But with our learning, our character and commitment determine the strength of our product, anchored resolutely to the infinite power of God. In Ether chapter 12, verse 27, it reads, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Singular term, weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. Notice the scripture refers to weakness, a singular term. 
In the presence of God, I imagine I would recognize many areas of improvement that I would need to make. Yet this scripture states in his presence, it is our weakness that we are shown. This weakness, I believe, refers to our relationship with God. If we come to him, we see the infinite and perfect love that he has for us. Yet we also see the weakness in our relationship with him and the many ways that we are lax and lazy in the way that we honor him, pray to him, and show our love to him. That is very humbling. But it goes on to say, if we are humble and actively come to him, that, and, and quote, if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things. Notice it switches from singular to plural, from weakness to things, become strong unto them. If we strengthen our relationship to the Savior, the many weaknesses that we all have are made strong. It is not merely us who changes. It is the beautiful lesson I learned as a young boy that I could dally up to an anchor point that would allow me access to a far greater power than my own. That exerting my efforts on holding that anchor point strong and tight was manageable to me if my focus was on the connection to the anchor point, not relying on my own inadequate power. I am grateful to work with students who are striving to dally up to the power of service, involvement, and commitments during turbulent times in their lives. I am grateful for their humility when they have trusted in their own power and found it to be inadequate to withstand temptations in turbulent times. I am grateful when their humility leads to accountability for their actions. And for the masses of students, faculty, administrators, bishops, advisors, Honor code counselors, therapists, and family members who collectively recognize the worth of a soul and stand ready to help. And I am most grateful for a loving Savior that allows us to be His fellow servants by being instruments in His hands. When we reflect upon Him as an anchor in our lives, I am grateful for the physical manifestation of the marks of anchors driven through His hands and feet that show the depth of sacrifice and charity from Him that sustains and blesses us today. May we be steadfast and immovable in our relationship with Him through our opportunities to serve and by dallying up to His power through commitments and covenants we make. I testify of these truths and say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Finding Strength in Times of Adversity, with thoughts from Sterling C. Hilton and Casey C. Peterson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.